One of the TV shows that I enjoy is uh, the show Alias. If you haven't watched it, it's a, it's a spy show, and and uh, they have great technology, and uh, kind of James Bondish some of the stuff they come up with, but it's just real enough to make you think it really could be there. But this week, yeah, right. <laughs> well, to a foolish man who loves action shows, it can make you think it's real. But this week they stretched it too far. They had captured uh, what they thought was an enemy spy and they needed to question her. And so the, the lead character says to the technology guy, could you build me a voice stress analyzer? Now they're out in the, you know, they're out in Europe somewhere, out in the field. Could you build me a voice stress analyzer so you can see if she's going to tell the truth? And so he goes, yeah, it'll take me just a minute. (laughs) (laughs) It took less time for him to build a voice stress analyzer on his computer than it would to show commercials for Chevy trucks, you know? Boom. And sure enough, she's telling the truth, you know, just like that. I could have used a voice stress analyzer when I had teenagers. (laughs) You know, we have a lot of interesting ways to verify that people are telling the truth. We say, would you raise your right hand, please? And then you, you utter an oath. Why does this make you tell the truth? I don't understand that. If you raise your right hand, well, what if you raise your left hand, you know, or... What if you kept your hands down? We try to make sure people are telling the truth. When we come to the Gospel of John today, we're going to find a very interesting phrase in which John is basically trying to say, I'm telling the truth, as he talks about his witness of Christ and about himself. Let's follow John John the Baptist as he's written about by John in chapter 1, verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. We're going to look in this passage of scripture at the ministry of John the Baptist. And we're also going to be introduced to what I would call are the characters of that Jesus will continue to encounter throughout his earthly ministry. 
And because of that, I want to take a little time this morning to make sure we understand what is being said in the Scripture. We, we have all read about the Pharisees over and over, and we, we see the term the Jews in the Scripture, and yet I think we need to ta- stop and take time and understand something about John's inquisitors. And the first group that is mentioned is the Jews in verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? If you were in my Sunday school class this morning, I told you you'd have a a leg up on today. Why are they called the Jews? Somebody from my Sunday school class answer that question. Because of the tribe of Judah and because after what event? Were they called the Jews? Oh, oh. After the captivity, very good, Marianne. The Jewish people, the Israel, before the captivity of Israel in the Old Testament, they would have just been called the Israelites or the people of Israel. And after they went into captivity, when they came back to Jerusalem, it was primarily what had been recognized as the southern kingdom of Israel, of which Judah was one of the tribes. And so from that time forth, when people referred to those people, they referred to them as the Jews. It's derived from the name Judah, which is one of the tribes of Israel. Now, one of my concerns in speaking about this today right up front is to say this, and I don't have time to to read all the relevant scripture, but I love Jewish people, and the official position of this church is that we love Jewish people, and the reason I say official position is because if you have a different position, you are sinning. If you have a prejudice against Jewish people, you are a sinner. Why do I say that? Because God loves all people equally. And uh, as we go through this Gospel of John, I believe you will understand more and more a, a correct understanding of this. In fact, today, when we see how John used the term the Jews, you're going to be uh, interested to see how he uses that. Why do I love Jewish people? Because God does. And because God has yet a future for them in a specific sense. That is what this time we call the tribulation, which lies yet ahead on mankind's chronology, is all about. It's about the Jewish people and about God's desire to get them to turn in a wholesale way to Him and to believe in Christ as their Savior or their Messiah, as we will learn that word today as well. And so I I love Jewish people, and you should too. We support missions to reach Jewish people for Christ. Now, And so nothing that I'm going to say today in any way should be construed as anything other than the fact that I'm trying to expound what God says. And there are some negative things said. There were some, some, uh, some uh, negative things done by the Jewish people. That is not to, to uh, uh, indict them in any sense any more than I would any other sinful human being on the earth. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests. An interesting thing happens as you, as you would study the Scripture, and here's a quote that I think will help us to understand what John does in his Gospel. This is quoted from M.R. Vincent in his Word Studies. The phrase, the Jews, occurs more than 50 times in John's Gospel, many more times than the other three Gospels together. John in his gospel, distinguishes between the multitude by which he refers to the whole of the Jewish inhabitants of Palestine and the Jews by which he usually refers to the leaders of the Jewish nation. 
by which he refers to those leaders, and they eventually came to oppose Christ. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, usually give the specific name of the group that is coming to oppose Christ, as in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the lawyers, the priests. The other gospel writers seem to name individual groups. John just says the Jews, and he's referring to those leadership groups. And when he wants to talk about all of the Jewish people in Israel, he will use the term the multitude. Look at verse 24 of the text we just read, John 1, 24. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. If you put that together with verse 9, it would read like this. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent Pharisees who were priests and Levites from Jerusalem. And so now we're beginning to understand the leadership of the Jewish people sent priests and Levites and Pharisees or priests and Levites who were Pharisees. The Pharisees were a particular religious group who believed very strongly in the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and were very, very committed to following every single command. They were so committed that they made up their own rules to help you follow God's rules. One of my favorite is, is a Sabbath law that they made up. God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall not work on the Sabbath day. How did they make up a rule to help people follow that? Well, one of them was you can't spit on the Sabbath day. This last week I was driving down the road, kind of coming up to a stop sign. You know, all the cars are kind of stopping. And boom, something landed on my windshield or on my, on my hood of my car. And I thought... You know, some bird has made a deposit. And I looked at it, and I kind of replayed the tape in my mind of everything that was happening, and it came out of the car next to me. <laughs> Man, I wanted to say, come on, cut me some slack here. But the, the, the Pharisee says you can't spit on the Sabbath day because if you spit, it makes mud and that's tilling the soil and that's working so you can't spit on the Sabbath day because you're breaking the Sabbath law. And so they would judge a person as harshly, as harshly for spitting as they would for actually going out and plowing a field. And they had all kinds of rules like that. All kinds of rules. That's what the Pharisees were about. Keeping the law. Later on, we'll see this group called the Sadducees. They had some different beliefs. But they're all part of the leadership, the religious leadership, and to some extent what we would call the political leadership of the nation of Israel. Israel is ruled by the Roman government as, as in the Roman Empire, which stretched far, and one of the parts of that Roman Empire were the people of Israel. And so the Romans said, you can control certain aspects of your, com of your country. And that ruling group would have been called the Sanhedrin or the 70 elders. And the Pharisees were all interlinked with the Sanhedrin. The other two groups that are mentioned here are priests and Levites. Priests were the descendants of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was the tribe that God said, this tribe is dedicated to me. They're going to serve me in the tabernacle and then later the temple. And out of that tribe, Aaron and all of his descendants were the priests. 
So what we essentially have in the word priest or the term priests and Levites is what we would call the ministry professionals. Okay? That's a, you know, in our day we don't think of different categories so much, but these, you know, the Levites would have been the support people at the temple. The the priests would have been the uh, the ones actually doing the the religious uh sacrifices and so on. So the the leadership of Israel which is both a religious and political kind of body, sends priests and Levites, ministry professionals, who theoretically would have the best knowledge of the Scripture, so they're going to go down and evaluate this teacher. And what we're reading about is the interchange between those two people. The Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to say, who are you? Now, the next thing I'd like to consider is this. As we think about the effectiveness of John's ministry, we ought to ask this question, why did they go to talk to him? Why did they go to talk to him? What did John do that got their attention? Well, here's from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea, all the land of Judea, And those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. This is what John did. He was out in the wilderness preaching. And according to this, the vast majority of people went out to hear him preach and agreed with his message. What was his message? His message was, repent of your sinful ways and prepare yourself for the Messiah. So this is going on out in the wilderness. I guess it would be like, you know, from here, like going to Linden, you know, or some some really remote desert place, you know, someplace far away. (laughs) Maybe like eastern Washington. No, physically they weren't that far away. But he was out in, the, out in the boondocks, if you will. And, and all of this happens with all of these people coming and being baptized and identifying with John's message. And finally, finally, the leadership, the people in, in Jerusalem sitting at their office said, we should go out and check this out. Do you know this guy's out there baptizing people? We should go out and find out why he's doing that. And so this is what John did, and it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a no-brainer, but what did John accomplish? John got people's attention in a big, big way. The excitement grew to huge proportions among the people until they flocked in thousands to the lonely desert region and until even the central authorities of the nation at Jerusalem felt constrained by the volume and the character of the reports to send out an official committee to make a first-hand investigation. That's a quote from um, C.H. Lenski. Let me put this in another way that brings it down to where you live. John's faithfulness to his calling yielded great results for God. Now, sometimes when we look at a guy like John the Baptist, we give him sort of what I would call a special, um, we, we say, well, he was unique, he was special, I could never be like him. Well, I, I kind of hope you never will be like him, wearing camel hair and eating locust and wild honey. But there is a sense in which he sets a good example for us. Now, John the Baptist was 
filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So he had a unique life. There's no doubt about that. And we might be tempted to say the reason he was so effective in doing his ministry is somehow God uniquely empowered him so that you know nobody else could possibly do that. Let me ask you about a couple of other Old Testament people. Do you remember somebody named Moses? Do you remember a guy named Saul who had the Spirit of God until God took it away? Do you remember a guy named David? Another guy named Solomon? All of these people had the Spirit of God placed on their life, but all of those Old Testament characters came to a point where they sinned greatly and their future ministry effectiveness was diminished, in some cases removed I believe John the Baptist was in the same mold as those four men that I mentioned. John the Baptist was born with a sin nature. Don't forget that. He was not somehow miraculously conceived so that he'd never sinned. The scripture doesn't say that. Was John the Baptist tempted to give up preaching in the wilderness? Well, if he's a human being, I think he was. Um, do you think he ever got tired of wearing camel hair? I would assume he did. Uh, How do you suppose he felt when he got arrested and put in jail for speaking the truth and he's facing a beheading? Do you suppose he thought, you know, maybe I should have been a little more careful with my words? I, I don't know. God doesn't tell us about his temptation. We, are certainly, we certainly understand that, that he, he lived a consistently righteous life, but does that mean he was never tempted to be distracted? Right here, this interchange we're reading about, these people are going to come to him and essentially say, we've been waiting for a great person. Are you him? Do you think there was no temptation for him to go, yep, I'm the guy. He's human. And so I would, I would ask you today, what's your calling from God? And how are you living it out? You have the Holy Spirit in you. It hasn't been there from birth, but it's been there since you accepted Christ as your Savior. And if I understand the Scriptures, you have that Holy Spirit perhaps in a fuller, better way than John had. What is your calling from God? Well, I would summarize it this way. God wants you to live righteously, both so that you will honor him and so you will draw people to yourself. And so I would ask a question like this. Does your home cause people to say, wow, what's going on here? Or, whoa, what's going on here? Do do your fellow employees say, how do you do that? Or do they say, what's wrong with you? Are you an exemplary student? The one that the teachers say, wow, how can you be so kind or gracious or whatever? Or are you known for other reasons at school? 
I would, I would challenge you today that, yes, John was specially called of God, but yes, you are specially called of God and gifted of Him and empowered with the Holy Spirit. John's ministry was effective. It did what God wanted it to do, and God wants you to be effective. And some of that is going to require you to humble yourself. You know, look what John says about himself in verse 27. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. The lowest slave in a house was the one who had to take people's shoes off and wash their feet when they came in. People come to our house for like the men's Bible study night and they take their shoes off when they walk in the door. And I say, that does not matter in our house. Uh, number one, we have a dog. And number two, the carpet hasn't been replaced yet. But when it is, by golly, then we're going to sterilize your feet. The lowest slave in the house had to wash people's feet. And you know what John says? I'm not even that high. I'm not even worthy to take, his, to take the strap off of his sandal. John had a view of himself which was, I'm here to do a job for God. And nothing distracted him from that. Nothing distracted him from that. John's ministry was effective. <coughs> We want to turn our attention now and look at this prophetic significance of John and see how he answers these questions because we learn quite a bit about him and about Jesus and about the, the nation of Israel at that time. And there's a question that's put forth, which is, who are you? <laughs> the Jews sent the priests and Levites and to say, who are you? you know, what's going on here? And so they asked three questions, and I want to consider the questions first, and then I want to consider the answers. The first question is, are you the Christ? Now that question is not specifically recorded in this text, but his first answer is, no, I'm not the Christ. Which tells me that that whole thing was going around in Jerusalem and out there in the desert. People were saying, do you suppose John is the Christ? Look at Luke chapter 3 verse 15. The people, that's the, the multitude of folks, were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John whether he was the Christ or not. People were talking about this even more than the big football game on Friday night. Hey, do you think he might be? Well, I don't know. Well, you know, he did this and he did that. And he said that, well, I don't, you know, and they're, they're reasoning in their hearts. They're thinking, they're mulling this over. Is he the Christ? Now that tells you something about the Jewish people. They knew there was a Messiah or a Savior coming and they were looking for him. The, the reason that they missed Jesus was not because they weren't looking for a Messiah. So they're looking at John saying, is he the guy? Some words I'd like you to learn here. One is the Old Testament Hebrew word, Mashiach, would actually be the way it would, would sort of be written. Not Mishia, but Mashiach would be pronounced that way. And it means anointed. The anointing was when they would take oil and pour it on somebody's head. It was a formal way to recognize they had been chosen for something. And most often in the Old Testament, the word anointed uh, would be used to indicate one of the kings being anointed or talking about the person who was to come. And literally, if it was translated, it would say, this is going to be the anointed one, the specially chosen one. Well, the Hebrew word for that is Mashiach, or we commonly use the word Messiah. The New Testament Greek word is Christos, or Christ. 
Those two words are equal, Messiah and Christ. Those are equal words, and they refer to the concept of anointing or being specially chosen by God. The proper way to address, to, uh, to put in writing or to address Christ would be this. Jesus, the Christ. The Christ. The anointed one. The specially chosen one. That would be the proper term for him. Jesus being his identity as a human being, the Christ, the, the position that he held. So, you would think that these people would have understood whether John was the Messiah or not based on the Scripture. If they knew the Messiah was coming, their deficit perhaps was that they hadn't really read their Old Testament and really studied it. And perhaps if, they had, if they'd been like us today, we'd have had a checklist and we just said, born in Jerusalem, or Bethlehem, check, um, you know, and go right down the list, tribe of, 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 of Benjamin, you know, check, and so on. Um, go right down, the tribe of Judah, excuse me, go right down the list, right down the checklist. But they didn't do that. And so consequently, because they didn't have a checklist, they were constantly confused. In the book of Acts, after, the, after Christ leaves the earth, one of the Jewish leaders is talking about the Christian movement and he says, hey, you know, some time ago there was a guy named Thutis who rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And then it says this, after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And and what he's saying in the context is, look, if if this Christianity thing is of God, you can't stop it. But if it's not of God, it'll just disappear. But what that tells me is there were a whole series of people who they thought were going to be the Messiah. And these ones that are mentioned are before the time of Christ. And here is John the Baptist, and they say, maybe he's the guy. So they went out to check him out. The second question they ask him is, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask this? Well, they would ask this from Malachi chapter 3, which we studied a few months ago. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the Lord being a reference to the Messiah or the Savior, the messenger being this other person, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So they knew this scripture and they knew God had said, I'm going to send Elijah. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament really well, you might not remember that Elijah never died. He was taken up in a chariot of clouds. Another song. We can remember the Old Testament by, uh, um, oh, now I can't remember the song. It's the, uh, um, yeah, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. That's based on the story of Elijah when he was taken up in a chariot of fire and he never died. And so the Jewish people thought, God's actually going to send the same guy back. And that's, that's what that sounds like. And I think that's still possible, but it's still yet a future time. So they said to him, are you Elijah? And then they said to him, are you the prophet? Now, this is based on Deuteronomy 18.15, which says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. It's Moses talking. 
He will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall listen to. And so mistakenly, the Jewish people had developed this idea that when the Messiah comes, there will be the Elijah forerunner, and then there will be this prophet and the Messiah. What they didn't learn, and the, and the apostles learned it later in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, was that Jesus was this prophet, or the Messiah was this prophet. There was not a separate person. So the leaders of Israel asked John, are you the Christ? Are you the Elijah? Excuse me, are you Elijah, or are, and are you the prophet? What did he say? He says, this is who I am. Negatively, he said, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. He was very clear about that. And in fact, look at verse 20. Because this is what I spoke about in my introduction, the way he, the way he sort of swore on the Bible with his right hand up. If you read it, 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 it sounds kind of odd. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. If they said, are you the Christ, he could have just said, no. But he didn't say that. One author put it this way. He translated it this way. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. Another author quote, uh, translated it this way. He quite definitely affirmed and stated, <laughs> I am not the Messiah. This is written in a, in a kind of superlative, uh, uh, layered up way. He confessed, he did not deny, but he confessed. In other words, he was really trying to be strong when he said, I am not the Christ, no way, don't ever say that about me. I think John knew God's plan well enough to know that he better not take any credit along that line that was not due to him. He said, I am not the Christ. I am not the Elijah. Um, and in saying that he was not the Elijah, you could take time to look at Luke chapter 1, verse 17 later on, which says that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he was not actually Elijah. And then he said, I'm not the prophet. And then he gives this positive answer at verse 23. Let's look there. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And it says, of course, as the prophet Isaiah said, here's the Isaiah scripture. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the, in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here where he talks about making ready the way of the Lord, there's a historical reference that we wouldn't understand completely, but we could, there's an equivalent today. When a king would come, say if the, if the Roman emperor had come to Israel to visit, they would have sent out a road crew, a public works crew ahead of time, and they would go down every road he would drive on, and they would make sure that it was a smooth road. If it needed to be filled in, it would be filled in. If it needed to be leveled off, it would be leveled off. If they needed to put gravel on or however they paved, they would do it. And that was a common practice when a king or a high-ranking official would come. They would make the way straight. They would smooth it out. They would prepare it for him. Today, we do something similar in spiffing things up, making things clean, presentable, and so on, when a person of high standing comes to visit us. 
John said, look, I'm the guy getting things ready because there is a king coming. I'm smoothing the way to the Savior. I'm smoothing the way to the Savior. One author that I read this week, uh, Dr. William Belshaw, who some of you know, said this, our task in many respects is identical with John's task. John was a specially chosen servant who was to go out and preach and and be kind of a unique individual and draw people's attention. What we're going to see next week as we go on in the scriptures that when Jesus comes around, he points to him and he says, there he is. He points to him very clearly. John is like a giant road sign saying, there's the Savior. That was his job. He did what 1 Peter 3.15 said, or, or, or if you will, it's, it's the equivalent for us, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. We are to be ready to point people to the Savior. Our lives should draw attention, but not like John's. John's life drew attention in part because he dressed rough and his hair was long. He was, he, you know, in our day we'd look at him and say, ooh, get away from him. And those people went, wow, what's going on? They went out to check it out. And then he preached the message of repentance. They got, they got right with God in that Old Testament sense and they were ready for Jesus to come and say, here's what you've been waiting for. Our lives are to be pointing people to the Savior. When they look at us, they should say, you know what, your life is different than my life. Now I know sometimes that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a burden to bear because it's hard to live righteous all the time. It is. But that's our calling from God. Several years ago when I lived in Tukwila, I was getting a Diet Coke one afternoon at the 7-Eleven. Imagine that. And somebody came in asking for directions, and they wanted to know how to get to the South Center Mall. That was the biggest, biggest landmark in our neck of the woods right there, just down the street, really. And this person who worked at the 7-Eleven didn't know how to get to some place that was a mile and a half away, you know. And, uh, and I said, oh, hey, that's no problem. I can tell you how to get there. I say, you just go down here the next street and turn right, and you'll go up over the hill, and you'll see the mall on your left. No sweat. Out they went. So I'm getting my Diet Coke, and I'm thinking about that, and I go, uh-oh. I sent them right up into the residential neighborhood. They probably haven't got out of there yet. <laughs> I told them to turn one street too soon. <laughs> but I made sure I was gone before they could come back. <laughs> I was very sincere. I thought I had it down, but I was dead wrong (laughs) you can't get there that way but it's kind of a roundabout way folks are you giving people good clear directions toward the savior good clear directions are you prepared with your words to give somebody a good clear direction to the savior does your life clearly point to a uniqueness within you the holy spirit and, and lastly, I would ask you this. Are you single-minded about ministry like John was? 
John just stayed on target no matter what. May God help us be so. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of John the Baptist. Thank you for the effectiveness of his ministry. Help us to be as single-minded as he was. Help us to be focused on what you've called us to do. Help us to say no to our sin life and yes to righteousness so that we might be a good signpost pointing people to Christ. I pray in his name, amen.